The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Not at all the greatest show on earth. This is Thursday, November 15th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news by patronizing my sponsors and with the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. The world of circus entertainment reached its peak in the late 1800s when P.T. Barnum introduced a second and eventually a third ring of entertainment under the big top, and the three-ring circus was born. People liked seeing multiple things at once and being able to focus on the one that intrigued them the most, so the ringmasters added more rings. When it got up to seven rings, as it did briefly, it was just too much. Too much for people to watch all at once and equally hard for the ringmasters to manage. Three Ring Circus began to take on another meaning. Chaos. Since January 2017, the current ringmaster has brought us a parade of spectacles, often in several rings at once. Now in ring one, a new acting attorney general to supervise the Mueller probe after calling that probe ridiculous and who's already decided there was no collusion, and who's already decided not to recuse himself despite his prejudice of the case. Is the Mueller probe in trouble? Is it constitutional crisis time yet? Keep a close eye on Ring 1. In Ring 2, a bitter fight over election results in Florida, wherein Democrats have demanded that every vote be counted while Republicans made baseless claims about fraud as more ballots and more votes for Democrats were counted while nationwide last week's election is one that keeps on giving to Democrats. And will Trump's claims of election fraud come up again if he is in a close election fight in 2020? Don't look away from Ring 2 for very long. In Ring 3, U.S. troops missing Thanksgiving and maybe the rest of the holiday season as they cool their heels along the border at taxpayer expense, waiting for an invasion that isn't an invasion, as world leaders scold and scorn the U.S. president who also managed to dishonor our own fallen soldiers because it was raining. Does he know about the satellite photos that show the nuclear threat from North Korea appears to have increased while he publicly claims that threat is over? He says he does know about these newly discovered missile silos, but calls the report of a continuing North Korean threat fake news. Definitely don't take your eyes off Ring 3. The deadly, horrific, hellacious wildfires in California have already drawn our attention away from the latest gun massacre. With the nations focused on the dead and missing in California, Trump skipped the condolences and got right to blaming the state's Democratic government, even though it's his own federal agencies in charge of forestry. As for the climate change that has increased the size, number, and intensity of these fires, there was a little good news this week for the planet, and we'll get back to that. The First Lady got the Deputy National Security Advisor fired, and there's nothing normal about that. And then there's Trump's assault on the First Amendment, specifically the free press. We'll cover all of these. If they were rings in a circus, we're up to at least seven now. It would seem wise to keep our eyes on all of them, even if we can only look at or describe one at a time. Now armed with an acting attorney general the president believes will protect him, Trump told reporters about the Mueller investigation, quote, I could end it right now. I could say that investigation is over. 
Minutes later, Trump fired Attorney General Jeff Sessions and named an acting AG, Matt Whitaker, who, unlike Sessions, has not and may not recuse himself from overseeing the Russia investigation. He says he'll check with the ethics lawyers at the Justice Department. This matters because without Whitaker's approval, the nearly finished Mueller report cannot be revealed even to Congress, much less the public, and Whitaker will probably say no. Democrats would have to wait until late January at the earliest to subpoena Mueller's report. The subpoena may or may not be obeyed once it's issued. A lot can happen between now and late January. Unrecused, Whitaker could cut off all funding for the Mueller probe. He now says he won't, but he's also said he would. Whitaker could also fire the special counsel Robert Mueller, and Whitaker appears to be so inclined. Whitaker will remain in that post while the Senate asks the next attorney general nominee about their views on the Russia probe. And with Republican resistors Jeff Flake and Bob Corker on their ways out, and with a stronger Senate majority, there would appear to be little chance of any legislation to protect Mueller or his investigation. But... Yesterday, Arizona's retiring Jeff Flake said that if the Senate leadership continues to refuse to pass protections for Mueller as promised, Flake says he will vote no on all of Trump's judicial nominees and maybe no on everything. Flake is the co-author of the bill to protect Mueller along with his friend, Delaware Democrat Chris Coons. Flake's threat is meaningful and powerful since Republicans have only an 11 to 10 majority on the Senate Judiciary Committee of which Flake is a member. His vote is crucial. And there are nearly two dozen nominees yet to be approved by that committee and nearly three dozen that are waiting for a vote by the full Senate. Flake says he'll vote no if Mueller isn't protected. Maine's Susan Collins says she also supports legislation to protect Mueller, as do several other Senate Republicans, so the votes McConnell wants to deliver for Trump may not be there, although Flake and Collins have dashed people's hopes before. With a stronger Republican majority in the Senate, the chances for conviction after impeachment appear to evaporate. More than 20 Republicans would have to change course to get the necessary two-thirds majority, and that isn't likely as things stand now. A lawyer for the special prosecutors for Watergate writes in the Washington Post that Mueller blew it by not issuing his report before the election. In the meantime, the nation has a temporary attorney general who feels as Trump does about the Russia probe. As for a permanent AG quoting Trump, I have some very, very good people. But I mean, there's no rush. Four times he denied him. At least four times on Friday, Trump claimed he did not know Matt Whitaker. It was barely a month ago, Trump himself told his friends at Fox News Channel, I know Matt Whitaker. White House officials confirm Trump knows Matt Whitaker. In fact, they say Trump already knew Whitaker's views on the Russia probe, how closely they match his own, and that it was a factor in his choosing Whitaker. This man Trump says he does not know has been to the White House at least a dozen times recently. And choosing Whitaker bypassed the Justice Department's rules of succession with no explanation. It is, by the way, unconstitutional to replace someone who'd been confirmed by the Senate with someone who hadn't, according to Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2. And that little mystery just scratches the surface of the Matt Whitaker story. The new acting attorney general wrote an opinion piece for CNN's website under the headline, Mueller's investigation of Trump is going too far. In the article, he said the president was absolutely correct in saying a Mueller peek into the Trump family finances would be a red line that, if crossed, would justify firing Mueller for overreach. 
Whitaker said he doesn't believe Russia meddled in the 2016 election, despite the findings of Congress and all of our intelligence agencies. Associates say Whitaker has no intention of recusing himself despite his adamant views and despite calls to do so from the attorneys general of 17 states and the District of Columbia. Whitaker's even testified for a Mueller grand jury and may be called to testify again. And he's connected to Sam Clovis, who served as Trump's national campaign chairman. And then there's Whitaker's other work. I can't sleep. My stress level is at an all-time high, and the last of my savings has been stolen. Those are the words of an unemployed widow who, like other investors, was begging a Florida company for their money back. Some of the Americans who'd invested in a sketchy patent company were military veterans who also lost their entire life savings. The new top cop in the United States is a man who was involved in that company, a paid member of its advisory board for world patent marketing, a man who vouched for them, capitalizing on his former title as a U.S. attorney. Quoting a disabled Army paratrooper, world patent marketing has devastated me emotionally, mentally, and financially. The company faced federal charges of tricking investors out of millions of dollars, and it was ordered earlier this year to pay $26 million to settle the case. Quoting acting AG Matt Whitaker, I would only align myself with a first-class organization. Another victim lost some $77,000 with the company that Whitaker was so proud to represent. So that disabled paratrooper was surprised to learn that the president for whom he voted would appoint a spokesman from such a crooked outfit. Surprised, disappointed, and deeply in debt. The company Whitaker had endorsed is now under FBI investigation. And the FBI is now under the supervision of Matt Whitaker, who's a material witness in this case. The media is also doing the vetting that the White House did not, finding a website of Whitaker's that presents evidence that Bigfoot exists. The Washington Post reports Whitaker has also declared his faith in time travel and has raised money for research. Bitcoin only, please. The guy's a wingnut. He's also hawked a hot tub seat and an extra deep toilet for this company now under investigation. The pitch for the toilet includes the size of the average male genitalia, but notes of the news release, this is designed for those of us who measure longer than that. The sanctuary city of San Francisco threatened to file a lawsuit to remove Whitaker from his new post if the Justice Department does not provide in writing a legal justification for Whitaker's appointment. Maryland also filed suit to block Whitaker, calling him unqualified and partisan, chosen for the purpose of protecting Donald Trump. And the Maryland suit asked the court to place Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein in that job since the Deputy AG is the normal successor to a departing Attorney General. The Justice Department has now answered that challenge, saying that under the 1998 Vacancies Reform Act, a president can appoint temporary officials at will and keep them on the job for a year and a half or longer. DOJ argues Obama did it twice, George W. Bush once, and that Trump has already done it five times before this. The practice, however, is not allowed according to the Appointments Clause of the Constitution, which requires key officials to be confirmed by the Senate, and that is the normal practice. At least it has been for the past 150 years. But all this hand-wringing over Whitaker is unnecessary, assures Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. 
McConnell says there isn't any chance the president will stop the Mueller investigation based on Trump's indication he wouldn't. In the late summer of 2017, veteran Senator Lindsey Graham called Jeff Sessions a truly fine person with a world-class legal mind. Back then, Graham said there'd be, quote, holy hell to pay if Sessions were fired. But just over a year later, with his friend John McCain dead and Graham now attached instead to Donald Trump, Graham seems to have forgotten those hell-to-pay words. When was that? Graham asked Martha McCallum of Fox News. What year? July of 2017, she answered, as she asked if there'd still be holy hell now that Sessions is fired. What I've been saying, responded Graham, is that every president deserves an attorney general they have confidence in. It was not working between Attorney General Jeff Sessions and President Trump. In other words, no, the holy hell thing is off. Graham also assured that Mueller's job and his investigation are safe. Graham, too, has been calling for the Mueller probe to stop, quoting again, one way or another. A national security author and documentarian writing in the Washington Post reminds us that there will still be an FBI. And even if director Chris Ray were to be fired, as was his predecessor James Comey, there would still be an FBI. Trump, reminds Tim Weiner, would be the fifth president in U.S. history to try to stop the FBI's quest for truth and justice. The other four failed. This has been especially true in the post-Hoover FBI, largely thanks to its former and longtime director, Robert Mueller. Since then, the FBI has proven Nixon was a crook, that the Reagan administration did trade weapons for hostages, and that Clinton did have sexual relations with that woman. Bush could not overcome the FBI's insistence. He dialed back his administration's eavesdropping on Americans, and the Bureau refused to be any part of that. And when Nixon put in a political stooge as FBI director, the men and women of the FBI fought his attempts to undermine their work, and they just kept doing their work. It was an FBI agent who was deep throat, a key source in the Watergate investigation. Nixon even fired the special prosecutor and chased off his attorney general, but none of these efforts saved Richard Nixon, and they would not likely save Donald Trump. The FBI can look at Trump's long-hidden tax returns, and it knows a lot of things we don't yet. And the evidence is stored on flash drives that cannot be erased or shredded. And all of this could be very handy for the Democratic Congress that takes office in January. In simpler times, the midterm election of nine days ago would be mostly old news by now. But that election remains current news, and we're still sorting out what happened. There are a million votes yet to be counted in California alone. For Democrats, the news has gotten better with almost every passing day since the polls closed. The blue wave got bigger as the votes were counted, bigger than the shellacking President Obama got in 2010, and nearly as big as the congressional turnover after Watergate. Democrats who needed 23 seats to get their majority have won 36 now and could end up with as many as 40 new seats in the House. It is their biggest gain since the post-Watergate election of 74. And while Republican control of the Senate grew, it grew by just one seat. Democrats lost only one or two seats there, not the three or four seats they were expecting to lose. After a close race for Jeff Flake's Senate seat in Arizona, Democrat Kirsten Sinema, who was trailing on election night, took the lead as mail-in ballots were counted and is now Arizona's first female senator after flipping her district from red to blue. But the House and Senate races are just the tip of the blue wave. 
when the dust in those races had settled, Democrats had won seven governorships and picked up well over 300 seats in state legislatures. Big-name Republican governors Scott Walker and Chris Kobach got the boot, as did the governors of Illinois, Maine, Michigan, Nevada, and New Mexico. State legislatures are the lawmaking bodies that, in recent Republican control, have made it easier to get guns, harder to vote, and easier to foul the environment with climate-changing pollution. Democrats replacing them can reverse all of those actions and fix the gerrymandering that's been proven more than once to be about suppressing votes. Democrats also flipped state attorney general seats in Colorado, Michigan, and Nevada, giving Democrats control of more than half the state AG offices in the country. And it's been lawsuits by those attorneys general that have kept Trump in line on immigration and the Affordable Care Act. But election night isn't over, as votes are still being counted across the country, with some of those races still painfully close. The Georgia governor's race remains undecided as we wait to hear if either Brian Kemp or Stacey Adams got the 50% or more they would need to avoid a runoff election. The court there has Abrams trailing Kemp by less than one half a percent, and a federal judge is ordered to delay in the certification of Georgia's election results, expressing concern about the state's voter registration system and Mr. Kemp's handling of provisional ballots. Kemp supervised the election in which he's now fighting to be governor. In the Florida governor's race, Democrat Andrew Gillum is also less than a half percent behind Republican Ron DeSantis. Florida law requires a recount in any race that close, so a recount is underway, as is the recount in the too-close-to-call Florida Senate seat up for grabs. In that race, the lead is less than two-tenths of a point for Republican Rick Scott and Democrat incumbent Bill Nelson. If those races are not settled by 3 o'clock this afternoon, Florida law demands a recount by hand of the ballots that were overvoted or undervoted. An overvoted ballot includes at least one race in which the voter chose more than one candidate. An undervoted ballot is one on which the voter appears to have skipped certain races, not voting for anyone in that office. Both kinds of sloppy voting are fairly typical, especially in places with ballots that are poorly designed. Broward County, Florida, is one of those places. The disputed Senate race was buried near the bottom of the page underneath a long column of instructions. There are at least 33,000 over and under votes to be recounted in Florida's Senate and gubernatorial races and well over 100,000 such ballots to be recounted in the race for Florida Agriculture Commissioner. The hand count, if it is necessary, would have to be finished by noon on Sunday. If there's a voting mess of any kind in Florida, it is more political than systemic. It started with a box of pens. A teacher in Broward County found a box the day after the election in which her school had served as a polling place. The box was labeled provisional ballots, so she turned it over to the sheriff. Republican Senator Marco Rubio was the first to pounce, tweeting about possible incompetence and dysfunction in the vote count. He wrote, I don't know what's in this sealed box found this morning by hashtag Broward County Sheriff. But when the election commissioner opened the box, there were no missing ballots. Not a single ballot had been withheld in that box. It contained some vote here signs, some stationery, and some pens. There had been no mischief, despite a prominent Republican's eagerness to suggest there was. But by then... Republicans across Florida and across the country and in the White House were convinced they were being robbed. 
The ongoing vote count made the size of their Florida victory shrink to less than a half percent. They were angry, accusing fraud and accusing the Broward County Election Commissioner of incompetence and gross mismanagement. It should be noted that Broward is predominantly Democratic and its elected election commissioner is also a Democrat, making her a target for Republican criticism in what once was a redder state. And although Broward County's had its problems, it is not Palm Beach County, where they do not expect to finish the recount in time today, forcing them to accept the results as they stand. Palm Beach County's election supervisor says her county's machines are too slow and have been overheating as they worked around the clock. Florida's voting laws and voting system are flawed. It just normally goes without notice because rarely are the races this tight. Rick Scott isn't just a candidate for the Senate. He's the sitting governor of Florida. And in that capacity, he asked state law enforcement to investigate Broward County election officials for, as he called it, rampant fraud. Scott used his gubernatorial influence in this way even after his own election monitors reported they saw no evidence of fraud in Broward, and they've overseen the entire process, his own people. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement reported six days ago that it had also seen no evidence of fraud. And the FDLE isn't commenting on Governor Scott's request, and in fact it seems to be ignoring that request. But his opponent in that Senate race did respond. Democratic incumbent Senator Bill Nelson says Scott is abusing his powers as governor and should have recused himself from the vote-counting process since, as governor, Scott's part of the canvassing commission that will certify the final election votes. Common Cause and the League of Women Voters filed a lawsuit against Scott, demanding also that he recuse. And Scott now says he will recuse himself from the rest of the election process. Nelson, meanwhile, is suing to recount mailed ballots that were thrown out because the signatures didn't seem to match those on the registration applications as determined by people not trained in handwriting analysis. Among the ballots tossed, one from a Florida lawmaker. Governor Rick Scott had also gone to court to try to force Florida law enforcement to impound voting machines from Broward's election headquarters. It's one of five lawsuits filed by Scott, with one filed against him. Bill Nelson has filed two lawsuits, but neither candidate suing the other. About a dozen lawsuits have been filed so far since the Florida recount began. The judge turned down Scott's impound request, but did agree to add three sheriff's deputies to the officers and guards already overseeing the recount to try to restore faith in the election system. He also urged both sides in this fight to tone down the rhetoric, adding, words matter. But Republicans, from Governor Scott to President Trump, stood their ground after having already planted the seeds of doubt in our election process. They had declared, without evidence, that fraud was afoot. Trump tweeting, an honest vote count is no longer possible. Last night in an interview, Trump said of Democratic voters, sometimes they go to their car, put on a different hat, put on a different shirt, come in and vote again. Of course, there is no evidence this ever happens, but that's never stopped him before. Pollster Nate Silver says Trump's attempts to delegitimize election results, quote, is maybe the most openly authoritarian move he's made so far. And some Americans wondered if Trump might make those same claims in the 2020 presidential election. 
Also from Washington, a warning from top Senate Democrat Chuck Schumer for Trump to, quote, stop bullying, harassing, and lying about the Florida recount because it endangers American democracy. Schumer, like others, has called on Florida Governor Rick Scott to recuse himself from the election in which he's still a candidate for Senate. And as I just mentioned, Scott says he will do just that. The Republican National Committee has rushed a hundred of its people to Florida and rounded up a thousand volunteers to help look for the fraud that neither law enforcement nor the governor's own election monitors have witnessed. The Democratic failure to capture the Senate in Washington, and in fact to lose a seat, is another example of minority rule in America. Democrats got nearly 13 million more votes than did Democrats last week and still failed to win control of the Senate. In the House races, more than 52% of the votes were cast for Democrats, only 48% for Republicans, and yet they won the Senate. As with Hillary Clinton, the popular vote meant nothing, even though the popular vote gave Democrats a seven-point lead. Republicans won in House seats in three states where they had lost the popular vote thanks to gerrymandering. In the Senate races, it was all about sparsely populated states like Wyoming getting as many senators as California, which has a population that's 60 times bigger. That's how we got a Supreme Court that's mostly occupied by justices who were nominated by presidents who did not win the popular vote. That's the way it's set up in the Constitution, as the Founding Fathers looked for a way to give each state an equal voice. But today, it's giving rural states an outsized voice in the rest of the nation, which is mostly urban. And it's a reminder to Democrats that to win in 2020, they must find a way to reach those rural voters who have now swung even farther to the right. Democrats didn't win by using the I-words, investigate and impeach. They ran on the voters' concerns of health care, prescription prices, and affordable college. They're trying to keep that focus, as they inherit a branch of the government, in the midst of serious concerns about the direction of that government. Health care, prescription prices, and affordable college did not come up in Nancy Pelosi's first conference call with the incoming Democratic Congress. The purpose of the call was to strategize the agenda. But just before that scheduled conference call, Trump fired Jeff Sessions and replaced him with Matt Whitaker. Democrats may be forced to put out fires over pursuing the issues, or at least try to find a balance between the two. Pelosi urged this new batch of Democratic lawmakers to proceed strategically, to choose their battles wisely, and in Pelosi's words, not chase every ball he throws. Still, there's a mounting hunger to stop the madness. Quoting California Democrat Eric Swalwell, We don't have to live this way anymore. We can actually do something to stop abuse of power. And I think it's important to show the American people we're going to do that because that's what they voted for. He's right. Despite Democrats' goals and voter-prioritized issues, many Americans voted for a check and balance on the president. The incoming Democratic chairman of the House Judiciary Committee says he'll subpoena Matt Whitaker if he must to try to secure the Mueller investigation. And there is plenty for lawmakers to investigate besides Russia. Incoming Oversight and Reform Chairman Elijah Cummings wants to investigate the Trump administration's handling of the Affordable Care Act and why it added a citizenship question to the census. But Democrats also know that with a swing too far to the left, they'll lose the support of the public and very possibly the 2020 presidential election. They know that to win, they also need to work to improve health care, infrastructure, and immigration. Election numbers also continue to trickle in about a record-breaking turnout. 
for the love or hate of Donald Trump, 113 million of us voted in this midterm, 30 million more than in the last one four years ago. In some states, voter turnout was nearly as big as in the 2016 presidential election because this midterm, more than the others, was truly about this president. Democrats and Republicans got off the couch and voted. Young voter turnout was up 10%, and although not quite one in three voted, they were a factor in the blue wave. Latino voter turnout, according to Democrats, was up 174%, mainly because there were so many Latinos on the ballot. The Hispanic community will now be represented in Congress by at least 34 Democrats and eight Republicans. On his way out the door, the outgoing attorney general did one more Jeff Sessions thing. He undercut the ability of the federal government to use previous court orders to overhaul police departments accused of civil rights violations and excessive force. Using court rulings in other cases is one way the Obama administration tried to curb abuses by police as the incidents of black men killed by officers and the protests that followed became impossible to ignore. It was a goal of Sessions from his first day on the job. He killed the investigations of police in Chicago and Louisiana. He immediately ordered a review of the court settlements reached in Baltimore, Chicago, and Ferguson, Missouri. At the end of his 16 months, just before he was fired, Sessions took drastic steps to reverse those reforms. He imposed three requirements. First, that future court settlements be approved by political appointees instead of the career attorneys who have always handled those settlements. Second, Sessions ordered that Justice Department lawyers must prove the department broke laws that are not in the Constitution. Proving the police acted unconstitutionally is no longer enough under Sessions' last-minute order. And third, all future settlements with police departments must have a sunset date, whether the department has corrected its problems or not. It was Jeff Sessions' farewell. How Trump vents his anger, the politics of fire, shake up in a shaky White House, and Bob Seska after this. Thank you again for using my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. No matter what you buy there, your use of that link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening. So please bookmark it as your shopping button. Right now, Amazon has everything you need for Thanksgiving, from food to decorations. And check out their holiday shopping guide. It's not too early. I get a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make, so it really helps power this free weekly report. If you'd rather not use my Amazon link, then please support this free independent journalism through the PayPal Donate button. At your desktop, it's just under the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just beneath the title, Buzz Burbank News and Comment. And thanks again. If we learned anything from Trump's trip to Paris, it is that he doesn't like rain and he doesn't mind being alone. Trump skipped a Veterans Day weekend ceremony for reasons that can best be summed up with the words, it was raining. Various accounts of what happened from the president and his people includes Trump's plans to take a motorcade instead of walking hand in hand with the other world leaders to the Arc de Triomphe. And when it was time to pay tribute to nearly 2,300 fallen American soldiers at a cemetery in Paris, Trump chose to take a helicopter instead of a car like the other world leaders, the White House saying a motorcade would have disrupted traffic. But then it rained, and we were told it had been decided it was too risky to fly, so Trump sheltered in place. World leaders had gathered in Paris to commemorate the 100th anniversary 
of the end of World War One. French President Emmanuel Macron, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, even Trump's Chief of Staff John Kelly stood in the rain, but Trump stayed indoors. Trump got slammed for his handling of the memorial, hard enough to prompt him to later blame the Secret Service for not letting him go to the cemetery after he'd complained in a speech about the rain. Trump also canceled his planned Veterans Day visit to Arlington National Cemetery on his return from France. Representatives from the French Embassy in Washington were there, French officials laying a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier in Washington. France paid its respects. Trump did not. And it wasn't even raining. Judging from his Twitter feed, Trump was more focused on the Florida Senate race, writing, Honest vote count no longer possible. Must go with election night. If we took the president's advice, it would mean tossing the ballots of more than 5,000 votes from overseas, most of them from our soldiers around the world. After failing twice to honor America's fallen soldiers, and in his ignorance, Trump was suggesting that the votes of those who serve should be tossed on Veterans Day. But Trump's disdain for the rain said it all, and it made him the target of severe internet trolling by Americans retweeting photos of Obama honoring vets in the rain, and photos posted by the French Army as it paid tribute. The French Army posted a photo of a soldier training in the rain with the caption, It is raining, but it's not a big deal. French President Macron shed his umbrella as he spoke to honor the dead, telling the crowd that in World War I it was raining bullets and that it doesn't compare to getting your hair wet. Macron also used the occasion to condemn the nationalism of which Trump says he is a proud supporter. I'm a nationalist, Trump had said. Nationalism, said Macron, is a betrayal of patriotism that can bring chaos and death. From behind his Twitter account, Trump threatened higher tariffs on French wine for revenge. This was the weekend Trump was hoping to have a big North Korea-style military parade in Washington, D.C., but the Pentagon had said it wasn't in the budget. In more ways than one, it had rained on his parade. It is no longer just Trump versus the media now. It is also the media versus Trump. On Tuesday, CNN filed a lawsuit against the president, his spokeswoman Sarah Sanders, and other White House officials accusing them of violating the news outlet's First and Fifth Amendment rights. The suit came after a press office intern, acting on orders, tried to grab the microphone from CNN's White House correspondent, Jim Acosta. Acosta had tried to ask a tough question, and Trump was struggling to cut him off. Acosta refused to let go of the mic and brushed away the intern, the back of his hand, brushing her bicep, brushing, not striking or pushing, as the original video proves. Trump called Acosta a rude, terrible person. The White House argued Acosta had behaved inappropriately, and it put out a video to support its claim. But the video had been doctored. Trump advisor Kellyanne Conway later dismissing that criticism by saying sports programs edit video all the time. The White House's edited video does not include the part where Acosta says to the intern, pardon me, ma'am. This is the rude person Trump had called out. Video trickery is just another tool in Trump's assaults on the legitimate news media, and official White House history gets edited in the process. At a minimum, CNN wants an injunction against the banning of Acosta from his assigned beat, arguing his credentials were stripped without due process in addition to the suppression of a free press. First Amendment experts say CNN has a strong case. Fox News Channel 
has now issued a statement supporting the CNN lawsuit. CNN reportedly tried to settle this without going to court, appealing to Chief of Staff John Kelly and others to try to resolve this like reasonable people. The last time CNN sued, it was for the right to become part of the White House press pool. With dozens dead and hundreds missing in the early days of the California wildfires and hundreds of thousands chased out of their homes, Trump was tweeting that California forest management is to blame and threatened to cut off federal funding for California. It was not the usual presidential tweet expressing concern for the grieving families, comfort for those waiting to hear the fate of their loved ones, or assurance that the federal government had their backs. No, instead, it was a tweet of political anger and revenge, while the rest of the nation worried about a fire that has since become the most deadly in California history. A firefighters union blasted Trump for his insensitivity and his misplaced blame and his ignorance. Quoting a wildfire specialist at UC Santa Barbara, these fires aren't even in forests. And even if they were, the vast majority of forest management in California is performed by the federal government and private enterprise, not by the California Democrats Trump hates so much. The death toll now stands at 56 and continues to rise as recovery operations continue in the burned and melted rubble. That fire, the Camp Fire, now 35% contained, is one of three wildfires being fought by 8,000 firefighters in California. The Woolsey Fire in Los Angeles and Ventura counties, about 450 buildings have been destroyed and two dozen others damaged with thousands of structures still in harm's way. The Woolsey Fire, now 53% contained, has burned more than 96,000 acres and Santa Ana winds have fanned the flames. Quoting the state's fire chief, every year seems to get worse. After being sharply criticized for his cynically political post as people were dying, Trump was once again shamed into semi-presidential behavior, tweeting he's approved an expedited request to declare California a major disaster area, adding, I am with you all the way. There are, in the meantime, small environmental victories to celebrate this week. Democrats who support clean energy are now state governors and state lawmakers at a time the battle against climate change is left to the states, local governments, and progressive companies. Democratic control of the House at least puts climate change back on the agenda. Sixteen states and Puerto Rico have already vowed to uphold the Paris climate accord that Trump has shunned. With new Democratic governors in Illinois, Kansas, Maine, Michigan, Nevada, New Mexico, and Wisconsin, look for that coalition to grow. Item two, a federal judge has blocked the Trump administration decision to allow completion of the controversial Keystone XL pipeline, at least for now. The judge says the administration has failed to provide a reasoned explanation for that decision while ignoring evidence the pipeline would hurt the environment and subsequently the climate. And presumed House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says she's reinstating the House panel on climate change, saying she was inspired by the young activists and advocates who protested outside her D.C. office this week, demanding a clear plan of action. Among the protesters outside her office, newly elected progressive Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It is worthwhile and instructive to make note of certain changes in Trump's words and deeds between the time before the election and the time that's passed since. Before the election, Trump tweeted nine times about the invasion he sent troops to the border to stop. He hasn't tweeted about it once since the election. Fueling speculation, it was in fact all about 
using fear to round up conservative votes. Note also the drastic actions and scattered attacks that have come from Trump just in these nine days since the midterm vote. The firing of Jeff Sessions and the appointment of Russia doubter Matt Whitaker to supervise the investigation. The promotion of distrust in our voting system and the unfounded claims of Democratic fraud. The attack on a free press, ripping the press pass away from a reporter because Trump didn't like the questions he was asking. And the publishing of a doctored video to support the Trump administration's false claims about the incident that led to that credentials revocation. Attacking California for its forest management when the fires are managed by the feds and not the center of the fire, and all of that while people were dead and missing. Dishonoring fallen veterans on Veterans Day because he doesn't like rain, threatening to throw out veterans' votes, and seeming to forget the nearly 6,000 troops he'd stranded at the southern border for the holidays with nothing to do. And setting off a round of tweets chock full of false claims about the fires, the election, and the stock market. These are the things Trump has said and done since he learned that he had lost the House to Democrats who are prepared to investigate all manner of things. The president is desperate. The president is scared. Trump's behavior is apparently contagious. In Texas, a Republican judge who was swept out of office by the blue wave has ordered the release of at least seven juvenile offenders saying bitterly it's, quote, obviously what the voters wanted. Some of those released were in the system for violent crimes. The judge released them when they each answered no to his question, do you plan to kill anybody? Out of nowhere, the first lady called for the firing of Deputy National Security Advisor Mira Ricardel. The normally quiet Melania Trump was going where first ladies don't normally and have never gone. Ricardel was deputy to National Security Advisor John Bolton. Mrs. Trump and Ricardel reportedly clashed during a recent trip to Africa, and Ricardel has reportedly irritated others, including Pentagon officials. When Ms. Trump told ABC last month she didn't trust some White House staffers, Ricardel was apparently at the top of that list. Quoting a statement through her spokeswoman, the First Lady said Ricardel, quote, no longer deserves the honor of serving in this White House. The statement was issued less than an hour after Ricardel had stood behind Trump at a White House event. Washington Post sources say Ricardel has a reputation for spreading negative stories, including some about Melania. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis didn't want Ricardel hired in the first place, and he's clashed with her more than once. White House Chief of Staff John Kelly has said Ricardel's been nothing but trouble for the West Wing, and he wanted her out as well. Still, first ladies don't normally call for the firing of a top national security official. There's speculation Melania Trump has gone rogue, clashing with her husband, the president. And it put her on a collision course with National Security Advisor John Bolton, which she won, revealing which of them has the president's ear. This is not normal government. It is normal for a president to make some changes in his White House after a midterm election, but Trump's already surpassed his turnover quota compared to normal presidents. Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke could be out on ethics questions, and there are others. But the most likely to be forced out is Homeland Security Secretary Christian Nielsen, who's been the target of Trump's anger about an increase in the illegal border crossings. If she goes, John Kelly, who has staunchly defended Ms. Nielsen, will likely quit. Firing Nielsen, you see, is also a way to force out Trump's chief of staff. Kelly and his staff have been accused of being the source of White House leaks, and... Kelly, too, has clashed with the First Lady. 
Kelly is expected to be replaced by the vice president's chief of staff, Nick Ayers. And if Kelly is fired and Ayers is hired, expect more White House staffers to quit, possibly en masse. Defense Secretary James Mattis's days may be numbered since he's suspected by Trump of trying to bring Democrats on board, and Trump recently said he believes Mattis is a Democrat. The apparently eminent departures of the Homeland Security Secretary and the Deputy National Security Advisor and possibly the Defense Secretary would seem to come at a bad time. Because the biggest news you're not hearing is that North Korea is still pursuing its nuclear weapons program. It has not been discussed publicly. 16 new hidden missile bases spotted by satellite. And quoting Trump, the sanctions are on, the missiles have stopped. The sanctions are actually collapsing on North Korea's promise to denuclearize. And although North Korea has stopped launching test missiles, the satellite images show the missile program is still growing. And Trump insists that the nuclear threat from North Korea is over. The departure of a Homeland Security Secretary and a Deputy National Security Advisor and possibly a Defense Secretary come just as the Trump administration is preparing to reimpose the sanctions against Iran that were lifted in the Iran nuclear deal. The Trump administration set a dozen conditions for Iran to meet before those reimposed sanctions can be relifted. Those conditions essentially call for a complete regime change in the Iranian government, a suggestion the Iranian government does not take kindly. But the sanctions also punish Russia and China for their trade with Iran, along with key U.S. allies, the U.K., France, and Germany, all of whom strongly object to Trump pulling the U.S. out of the Iran nuclear deal. The departures come as a new bipartisan report for Congress declares that the U.S. military has deteriorated to, quote, a dangerous degree and that the U.S. might lose a war against China or Russia. The purpose of the report by the National Defense Strategy Commission was to evaluate the Trump administration's 2018 national defense strategy. The report doesn't criticize the strategy. Instead, it says it's not being implemented fast enough to keep up with Russia and China. Hate crimes increased in shocking numbers during Trump's first year in office. In its annual report on hate crimes, the FBI says hate crimes spiked by about 17% last year. Hate crimes against Jews were also up 17%, or at least the record-keeping is. Compiling hate crime data for the nation's been tough since some police departments were not reporting their hate crime arrests. Nearly 9 out of 10 of the law enforcement agencies reporting hate crimes this year didn't report any from the year before. Likewise, there are still cases of hate crimes that are not being charged as such, so the actual number of hate crimes may be even bigger than these numbers suggest. Iowa Republican Congressman Steve King survived another election last week, even after meeting with a far-right Austrian group linked to Nazis. Even after the congressman retweeted an avowed Nazi sympathizer, he was re-elected with just over 50% of the vote. In Illinois, the former leader of the American Nazi Party picked up more than a quarter of the votes as he ran for Congress as a Republican. Both of these developments pleased the publisher of the neo-Nazi website The Daily Stormer, especially about Steve King's re-election. Quoting him, if it was a referendum on Steve King's white nationalism, as Democrats are trying to frame it, then white nationalism won. 
On an alt-right bulletin board, Trump even got praise for calling a reporter's question racist. The black reporter was asking if his rhetoric had emboldened white nationalists. That's such a racist question, said Trump. When the reporter asked if the Republican Party might be seen as supporting white nationalists because of his rhetoric, Trump finally answered saying, oh, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. The white nationalists and neo-Nazis who celebrated Trump's claim of very fine people on both sides during the trouble in Charlottesville last year were pleased about the election. After Trump had spoken of an invasion at our border, a man committed mass murder in a synagogue that he blamed on the Jews. Trump swears he's not a racist. White nationalists believe he is. A Washington, D.C. man whose relatives were alarmed about his white nationalist ravings has now been arrested for illegal possession of a firearm and a high-capacity magazine. He was a social media follower of the synagogue shooter and said the 11 victims, quote, deserved it. He and his brother, the brother taking his own life recently, took up guns because they believed there was going to be a civil war. Jordan Blue not only didn't put his hand in the air like the other boys, he looked uncomfortable. A professional photographer hired for the prom at Baraboo High in Wisconsin was taking pictures, this one just the boys. By one account, he asked the boys to give him a high sign, and they raised their open palms into the air, fingers together, pointed straight. Some did it because they wanted to be like the others. Some did it out of immaturity and ignorance. Some did it because they were just following instructions. Some knew exactly what it meant. A boy on the front row is holding the fingers of one hand in an okay pose, reportedly a white supremacist signal. Jordan Blue, top right, did not raise his hand or smile like the other boys. The picture was on the photographer's website. One of the boys tweeted the picture with the caption, we even got the black kid to throw it up. The photo went viral and worldwide. Even the Auschwitz Memorial in Poland expressed its outrage, tweeting, this is why every single day we work hard to educate. We need to explain the danger of hateful ideology rising. It concluded, Auschwitz, with its gas chambers, was at the end of a long process of normalizing and accommodating hatred. So how do we get back to normal? Salon.com's Bob Seska makes a surprising call for unity. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. It's never easy taking an unpopular position. It's especially difficult when the unpopularity of the position comes from your own side of the political debate. I've somehow managed to be in this tight spot on more than one occasion. It was this way during certain stages of the Obama years, for example, certainly during the summer of Snowden back in 2013, when most of the left was lined up in support of Glenn Greenwald and Edward Snowden. I'm happy to see, however, that opinions have shifted since then, certainly about Greenwald, who's proving himself to be everything I said he was back when much of the left was simultaneously deifying him and cursing my opposition to his brand of disruption disguised as reporting. There have always been two factors that have helped me to retain the will to stand by my convictions in these cases. One, the support of smart people, and two, the confidence that goes along with carefully studying the landscape and determining the correct path forward. Fortunately, and in most cases, both items are usually present. Even then, taking a risky position can be lonely, and my confidence can occasionally be shaken. Cutting to the chase, I'm continuing to game out my ongoing thesis that a coalition of normals is the most effective way to repair the systemic damage of the Trump crisis. 
More specifically, I believe Democrats and never Trump Republicans need to form a working coalition to address structural changes to the presidency and other related institutions in order to prevent another Trump while fixing everything Trump himself has crushed under his ponderous flailing bulk. For the most part, the coalition has been met with positive reactions from both groups. As I've surveyed various players about the idea, it's been exclusively the left, however, that's opposed it. Not every liberal, but among those who dislike the idea, 100% of those people happen to be liberals. For example, the two most vocal opponents I've heard from are my friend who goes by the name Driftglass from the Professional Left podcast and my editor at Salon.com, Andrew O'Hear. Along those lines, I thought I'd take some time today to address some of the criticisms I've heard from various Democrats who are deeply skeptical of the coalition, most of whom believe I'm being overly naive and or idealistic. I, of course, strongly disagree. In fact, every molecule of the coalition idea is born out of practicality and necessity. There's nothing irrational about it, and so far, I haven't heard a single valid argument against it. Nevertheless, let's take a look at some of the liberal arguments against the coalition of normals. The first gripe is, you're never going to get never-Trumpers to agree with us on the issues. I thought we'd start here since it's an easy one to address. The coalition isn't about issues. It never has been. It's about structure, process, and institutions. It's not as fun as issues, but there are areas that absolutely need addressing separate from disagreements on issues, especially knowing how never-Trumpers tend to agree with Democrats on what needs to be fixed. And the only way to fix damage this extensive, possibly with constitutional amendments, is to have the cooperation of some Republicans. Democrats alone can't fix the Electoral College or divestiture rules or the White House usage of social media or devising new mandatory presidential qualifications or anything requiring an amendment. But regarding actual issues, it's worth noting how prominent never-Trumper David Frum is already on record supporting legislation to solve the climate crisis. He's also on record as having defended George Soros. And most importantly, Frum called out the Republicans for their voter suppression, suggesting the GOP is being racist with its purges and other related shenanigans. You'll also find more than a few never-Trumpers supporting the Affordable Care Act. So sure, it took them a while to get here, but they're here. And it's the never-Trumpers who are meeting us eye-to-eye on several key issues, which is a bonus. The second gripe is the never-Trumpers are part of the reason why Trump exists. This is the most frequent gripe I see. What about Gitmo and Iraq and Sarah Palin and torture and tax cuts and so on? What about all the things they've been wrong about for years? Look, I've been doing this for a long time, and I'm well aware of the establishment GOP's sins, some of which have impacted me personally. I've spent many hours criticizing Bill Kristol, David Frum, Steve Schmidt during the 2008 campaign, and even my e-friend Tom Nichols on occasion. I'm fully cognizant of all the things. Anyone who's followed my work since 2004-ish knows how I feel about their support for policy proposals that I find untenable in some cases and loathsome in others. What I have trouble grasping is the answer to this question. What do we get by scolding people who actually agree with us on one of the biggest ever existential threats to American democracy? Seriously, I'd like to know what we get. The scolding and rejection of never-Trumpers will win us what, exactly? Is there something more substantive beside the, I don't know, personal satisfaction of being able to tisk-tisk moderate conservatives up close? Are we expecting never-Trumpers to rend their garments in penance for their sins? 
While we're waiting for an adequate degree of contrition, Trump continues to inflict damage and Trumpism will continue to metastasize. The time to start is now, not when we've sufficiently flogged the never Trumpers into submission. The third gripe is they can't be trusted. They'll stab us in the back and embarrass us. Well, since the 2016 election, we've been screaming all over social media and the blogs about how congressional Republicans should put nation before party. Never Trumpers are doing exactly that, while some of them are actually seeing the wisdom of center-left policies in the meantime. Given the amount of abuse they've been receiving from the Red Hats, the Never Trumpers are taking a brave and unpopular stance. This indicates to me a crap ton of sincerity and fortitude. There are never guarantees in life, and sure, there's a chance they'll balk and revert back to extreme partisanship, but we're all sticking our necks out in opposition to our president, who could very easily declare martial law tomorrow, subsequently arresting dissidents such as, yes, from, and others. Frankly, I give the never-Trumpers a hell of a lot of credit for holding an unpopular opinion among so many of their former peers and permanent family members. I assure you, they're not going through all of this just to maybe, kinda, eventually team up with Democrats with the sole purpose of stabbing us in the back when we least expect it. Hell, if that were the case, I'd give them a lot of credit for a very risky, long-view plot. All told, I'm not trying to pull us into a trap. It's clear, however, that Democrats aren't capable of unilaterally making all the repairs to the system that are necessary to eradicate Trump's brand of toxic populism and creeping fascism from the national dialogue. We need these well-known conservatives to convince other Republicans that systemic reconstruction is a mandatory effort. Democracy is on the line here, and the only way to protect it from a hasty death is to build coalitions to stitch together a broad enough net capable of rescuing it, one, then to create fertile ground for it to flourish. Rejecting such coalition building with a handful of trite and knee-jerk grievances isn't going to fix a damn thing. In fact, this is a unite-or-die crisis requiring all the help we can get. For this cause, I'm more than willing to hold fast, despite being out on a limb, again. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Bob will have a fresh show this afternoon. I'll be back with him again on the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. After the NRA told doctors who want to reduce gun deaths to, quote, stay in your lane, a forensic pathologist in San Francisco had heard enough. She tweeted back, do you have any idea how many bullets I pull out of corpses weekly? This isn't just my lane, tweeted the doctor. It's my effing highway. This is our interstate, responded another doctor. In the 1990s, the NRA lobbied successfully to keep the Centers for Disease Control from researching gun violence. That ban was lifted in early spring of this year, but the CDC is still banned from using taxpayer money to promote gun control. Quoting our fed-up forensic pathologist, we need to do something. We are the ones who have to deal with the consequences. We're the ones who have to testify in court about the wounds. We're the ones who have to talk to the family members. She concludes, it breaks my heart, and it's just another day in America. As it turns out, California has a law that could have prevented last week's mass shooting in Thousand Oaks. A dozen people died at the hands of a man with a semi-automatic weapon and smoke bombs because his intent was to kill a lot of people with his guns. As someone who already had a record of gun violations, the shooter shouldn't have had any. 
The law was passed four years ago after another mass shooting in a state with some of the nation's toughest gun laws. The law created a gun violence restraining order for judges to use to keep anyone with that history from getting their hands on guns. The law, as it turned out tragically in this case, is rarely used because many people, including lawyers and judges, didn't even know it existed. There's a similar law now in Parkland, Florida, site of last year's high school massacre. There have been over 300 mass shootings so far this year. That, of course, doesn't count the domestic killings, the accidental shootings, the gang violence, or the suicides. 300 is just the number of mass killings. The doctors are saying it's a national health crisis and should be addressed as such immediately. The NRA argument that the best way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun failed us again in Thousand Oaks, where both an armed guard and an armed police officer were killed. After the synagogue shooting, Trump said it wouldn't have happened if they had an armed guard on duty. Eleven died in that synagogue, twelve in the country music bar in Thousand Oaks. It's important to report that the NRA was outspent in the midterm election this year by more than a million dollars. The pro-gun group spent just under $10 million on Republicans in those national races. That's quite a drop from the nearly $60 million it spent in the 2016 presidential election. Gun sanity advocates rode the blue wave into the House. Gun lobbyists say they won big in the Senate. But the midterm election has already shifted the politics of gun control. In Washington, voters soundly voted to strengthen the state's gun laws. Gun safety candidates won governorships as well as seats in the House. Well, the election is over, and 5,600 U.S. troops wait at the border so that when the migrant caravan arrives, they are able to not do very much. American soldiers are not allowed to apprehend immigrants. That's a job for border agents. The troops are under instructions not to even interact with the immigrants, much less fight to prevent Trump's invasion. At a cost to taxpayers of at least $200 million, and that could go higher, for a caravan whose arrival is still mostly weeks away. Trump calls the troops his human wall, a wall of humans who won't be home for Thanksgiving, maybe not even for Christmas and Hanukkah. The number of caravanners arriving at the border is expected to be smaller than border agents arrest in three average days lately. About 800 migrants who split off from the rest of the caravan have now arrived at the fortified border in Tijuana, saying they plan to ask for asylum that Trump says they will not get. Trump administration's also suffered a couple of court defeats on immigration this past week. An appeals court ruled that Trump cannot order an end to the Dreamer program, known as DACA. Trump says he'll take this all the way to the Supreme Court, in which he has great confidence. But it was the Supreme Court that refused to stop a lawsuit against the Trump administration's plans to add a citizenship question to the census. The suit was brought by 18 states in the American Civil Liberties Union. They argue the question is an intimidation tactic aimed at immigrants to keep them from standing up to be counted. Lawyers for a half dozen people in the coming caravan have filed a lawsuit against the Trump administration, accusing it of denying the migrants legal right to asylum without due process. Also this past week, Trump used national security as a reason for denying asylum to nearly all migrants who cross the border without papers. Intimidation, thy name, is also college. A new report says Latinos who are U.S. citizens 
are deciding not to go to college for fear it will draw the attention of immigration officials who could deport their parents. They're passing up a higher education to avoid ratting out their folks. UFOs, Stan Lee, The Grinch, toys, and an exploding wedding dress in the third and final segment of Next. Life insurance seems boring and complicated, and who wants to think about dying anyway? But having life insurance is a great feeling, knowing your family won't have to start a GoFundMe to stay afloat. So how do you shop for the best deal or the best policy for you? Where do you start? Who do you trust? Do your own research? It sounds risky and still boring, unless you go to PolicyGenius.com. Even if you don't know jack about insurance, PolicyGenius.com guides you to the policy that's right for you and in just two minutes. PolicyGenius.com does the work for you by comparing quotes from all the top companies to save you money. You get peace of mind knowing that over 4 million people have used PolicyGenius not just for life insurance, but home, auto, disability, and more. And all of it easy. Stop putting off having the life insurance you know you need. Take two minutes on your phone right now to make the right decision for you and your family. PolicyGenius.com, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Thanksgiving's on Thursday as usual, which means this program won't be available as usual for just one edition on that particular Thursday. I'll be back the following week for the fifth Thursday in November, November 29th. I am thankful for your support. Have a great Thanksgiving. Health updates. We still don't know what's causing the spike in cases of acute flaccid myelitis, that flu-like illness that's mainly hit kids. There are now more than 90 cases in 27 states, causing partial paralysis about a week after a respiratory illness complete with fever. Half the patients do not recover. The FDA is cracking down on e-cigarette sales with plans to ban them in convenience stores and gas stations. Leading e-cig maker Juul says it will limit the sales of the flavors young people find appealing. The FDA is also planning to ban menthol and other flavors of cigarettes. Both government and industry say they've tried not to overreact to the epidemic of vaping among young people, but to recognize its potential for creating a new generation of addicts. Irish aviation officials are investigating multiple sightings of a UFO in the skies over Ireland. It was the morning of 9 November when the object was spotted by the captain on a British Airways flight from Montreal. She radioed it into the tower at Shannon. A pilot for Virgin saw it too on his flight from Orlando to Manchester. Another pilot radioed, glad I'm not the only one. He wasn't, and there were others. The Irish Aviation Authority says it will file a report on its investigation and says it does not expect to conclude it was aliens from another world. There were no military exercises in the area at the time. The truth is still out there. There are others far more qualified than I to memorialize comic book revolutionizer Stan Lee, who passed this week at 95. Marvel Comics and its movie division will remember him for his profits as well as for his creative mind. The best tribute to Lee is the universal agreement that he was the person who humanized superheroes, gave them flaws and insecurities just like our own. He also campaigned through his work for racial equality. It's not surprising. Stanley Martin Lieber of the Bronx, the son of immigrant parents, started reading Shakespeare at age 10. Earlier this year in the New York Times, Lee called himself the luckiest guy in the world. 
The Grinch is Hollywood's superhero this week. Christmas came early for Illumination Entertainment and its distributor, Universal. The latest incarnation of the Dr. Seuss villain did not take pop guns or bicycles, roller skates or drums, checkerboards or tricycles, popcorns or plums. He took in $66 million in his opening week, voiced by Benedict Cumberbatch. Bohemian Rhapsody was a strong second, selling $31 million worth of tickets in North America, bringing its total to $100 million here and another $185 million in the rest of the world. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click through my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. We have some winners inducted into the National Toy Hall of Fame. The finalists included the American Girls Dolls, the Young Board Game Shoots and Ladders, the Fisher-Price Corn Popper, the Sled, Tic-Tac-Toe, Tickle Me Elmo, Electric Football, and Chalk. But the nominees that won were the Magic 8-Ball, the Card Game Uno, and Pinball. The Magic 8-Ball was introduced 70 years ago in 1946. Pinball was developed in 1931 based on the French table game Bagatelle. Pinball, of course, was a precursor to today's video games. And better luck next year, chalk. You ate your meat, so you may now have your pudding. In Texas, a woman celebrated her divorce by destroying her wedding dress with 20 pounds of explosives. She wanted it obliterated in glorious and dramatic fashion. So on her father's farm, 25 miles west of San Antonio, she aimed a scoped rifle at the dress to set off the explosives. The explosion was huge, she reports, adding, it was liberating, it was closure. The blast was felt more than 15 miles away. Police in Santa Ana, California are still looking for the woman who attacked a manager at McDonald's around 11 p.m. Only the drive-thru was open, and when the woman discovered they hadn't given her ketchup, she stormed through an employee door to get her ketchup. Manager told her she shouldn't be in there. Video shows the woman attacking the manager. It also shows a man, apparently the woman's passenger, entering that same employee door to pull his friend off the manager. Police are studying the video to help find the angry ketchup craver. In Wayne, New Jersey, police arrested 57-year-old Christopher Grayshock of West Milford after he rear-ended another car Sunday evening. The charge was DWI about an hour after the Jets lost to the Bills 41-10. Officers say Grayshock told them, I drank too much because the Jets suck. Not to be overlooked, Florida police pulled over a smart car that had been painted and decorated to make it look like Fred Flintstone's footmobile. The driver stepped out of the car so police could get pictures because the driver was also wearing a Fred Flintstone tunic, necktie, and wig. This Fred was ticketed, according to the Pasco County Sheriff, for paddling too fast. Police in Paris spotted a man taking selfies of himself and a two-month-old lion cub as he drove his Lamborghini along the Champs-Élysées. Well, it wasn't really his Lamborghini. It belongs to the exotic car rental company where he works. The lion cub is now in the care of an animal charity. Cat's name is Putin. In Russia, four pedestrians were caught by police as they tried to cross a vehicles-only bridge, disguising themselves in a big yellow cardboard school bus replica. Police made the bus turn around. 
in Las Vegas, a man's shoelace got caught on the accelerator as he was pulling into his driveway. As a result, the U-Haul he was driving wound up in his backyard swimming pool. No one was injured. It cost him three grand for a tow truck just to pull it out. Quoting the tow truck driver, luckily there was no water in the pool, so it made recovery a little bit easier. In this week's best highway spills, there was spinach all over the highway on I-74 in Ohio. Green leaves of fresh spinach dotted the roadway after the driver overcorrected for something and flipped his trailer. Just minor injuries for the driver. Where's the crouton spill when you need it? In Houston, drivers were serving to miss the giant spools tumbling down Interstate 10 after those spools fell off a truck. No one got hurt, which is quite a break considering each spool weighed 18,000 pounds. It was apparently Alligator Relaxation Week. In Port St. Lucie, Florida, police removed a gator from the employee break room at a Walmart. It was a baby gator, just about two feet long, so the officer was able to just pick it up in that careful way that Florida officers are trained to do. And from a gator in the break room to a gator in the hot tub in Gator Relaxation Week. In Kansas City, a landlord called police to report a seven-foot alligator in the property's hot tub. The landlord discovered the big gator while he was in the process of evicting his tenant. Kansas City police called in animal control as they are trained to do. The evicted tenant, the gator's owner, says his name is Catfish and says the illegal pet was, quote, a big cuddly lizard who smiled all the time. Have you seen our monkey? Mike and Ann Smith of South Carolina had traveled to Morrisville to get their monkey Willow her annual veterinary checkup. After a long drive, they checked into a La Quinta Inn. The monkey got spooked by a passing airplane and escaped, and it's getting cold now in Ohio. The Smiths are now offering a $1,000 reward for Willow's safe return, quoting Ann, It's just like losing a child. No one knows that unless they've had a monkey. And finally, where does a bear go to the bathroom? In the woods, of course, but also inside a restroom in a park north of Santa Barbara, California. Officials say the bear apparently entered the restroom and accidentally locked itself inside. Security photos show the bear balancing on top of the stall doors as it tried to escape through a window that's eight feet off the ground. The bear did relieve himself before he was released. Unfortunately, he did not use toilet paper or even the toilet. I mean, it normally goes in the woods. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back the Thursday after Thanksgiving with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.